Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insight into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. By now, you know that my name is Simon Fraser, and I'm a second-year intern doctor at Charlotte McGregor Johannesburg Academic Hospital. I started the Dr. Coffee podcast last year to broaden my knowledge and understanding of the incredible world of medicine and surgery and the variety of subspecialties and disciplines that exist within them. Each week's episode features an interview with a consultant or senior registrar in a specialty requested by the Dr. Coffee audience or a topical episode that's applicable and helpful to our audience of junior doctors and medical students. You're invited to learn and grow with me as I discover the perks, pitfalls and perils of specializing and practicing medicine in our beautiful country. Welcome to episode 26. In this week's Coffee with Consultants feature, my guest is Dr. Yvette Lazarus, a specialist physician and rheumatologist currently in private practice in Sanson, Johannesburg. Dr. Yvette completed her undergraduate medical degree at Wits University in 2005 and, as she'll share in our interview, had a slightly non-linear path to registrar time in internal medicine. She excelled in her FCP exams and qualified as a physician in 2014 and completed her subspecialist training in rheumatology in 2019. In addition to private practice and teaching medical students, Dr. Yvette has been a keynote speaker on ENCA, CNBC Africa, Good News Community Radio, and the Forbes Africa Health Summit. She has also been quoted in Forbes magazine and nominated as a Woman of Stature 2021. Dr. Lazarus is married to Wesley and has two beautiful children. Before we get into this week's guest interview and a discussion about rheumatology, let's take a moment to talk about our listener question from episode 24. In episode 24 of the Dr. Coffee podcast, which featured forensic pathologist Professor Ryan Blumenthal, I recounted the story of Soviet surgeon Dr. Leonard Rogozov, who became famous in 1961 for safely completing an appendectomy on himself when he developed appendicitis while stationed in Antarctica. This amazing story from medical history prompted a question to our listeners. What are some of the medical or surgical procedures that you have done on yourself or your friends and family. Now, we only got a few responses to this question, and it seems from the answers that many of us have taken blood from long-suffering family members or used them as our own personal OSCE practice stations. However, two submitted answers were most notable. A current intern doctor at Chris Honey Baragwanath shared how he removed a skin tag on himself without anesthetic using just a surgical blade and some gauze. Apparently, it bled like crazy, and I'm sure it hurt a ton as well. But I have to say, the wildest story submitted actually comes from a community service doctor who recounts how, while she was still a medical student, her brother managed to sever two of his fingers completely off and had another badly injured in an unlucky home workshop accident. The quick-thinking doctor-to-be quickly scooped up the severed digits, popped them in a Ziploc bag, put that in a second bag with some ice cubes and helped her bleeding and screaming brother get to the hospital. Emergency hand surgery by the orthopedic and plastic surgeons helped to reattach 
and save the fingers, and he basically has almost 100% normal function in his hand and fantastic cosmesis, to the point where you'd need to be shown where the fingers were cut before you'd even notice they were injured. What an amazing story, and well done to that sister of the year. Needless to say, I think she deserves the award for best story to this particular question. Now back to our interview with our specialist guest, Dr. Yvette Lazarus. I'm excited for you to hear this episode. She'll unpack her journey in medicine and tell us all about her specialty, rheumatology, which includes the treatment of autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, psoriasis, gout, scleroderma, and many more. We also spoke about being your best for your patients, making diagnosis for friends over WhatsApp, and overcoming imposter syndrome. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and I'm sure you will as well. Now, there was some rain that fell during this interview recording, so after about 20 minutes, you may hear that in the background falling on the roof. However, I hope it does not detract from the interview and your enjoyment of it. So now, without any further ado, here is Dr. Vet Lazarus. Welcome to the Dr. Coffee Podcast, Dr. Yvette Lazarus. Hi, Simon. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for making yourself available for our podcast. And the first question that we ask all of our guests right off the bat is about your junior doctor years and your medical training. So, where did you go to medical school? Okay, Simon, I'm going to take you a step back. I think this is the most important part about me. When I was five years old, I was at Sunday school and our teacher said to us, we have to ask God what we want to do in life. Um, so I prayed about it and two or three days later I watched a movie on the bubonic plague and I knew at five years old that I wanted to be a doctor <clears throat> working <laughs> with all the masks and all, the, all that stuff. So from that day I've always knew and I've never changed my mind and I've worked towards it from then. I used to read the world books under H when there used to be OHP projectors <clears throat> in those books and had little notes when I was 10 years old, made birthday cards for my parents that said from Dr. Yvette Pachapin sure. at that stage. And so that's where the journey started for me. So I was very focused on my goal throughout high school and all of that, knowing that my family probably weren't able to financially support me through med school. So I applied for bursaries and all of that, got bursaries wow. to study medicine. I'm from Durban originally, but I studied at Wits uh, Medical School. I started in the year 2000, so that's 23 years ago. Uh, finished in 2005, my primary undergrad degree. And then community, so then internship. Yes, yes. <clears throat> wow, but what an incredible backstory. So for you know all of those years, you were single-minded about mm. this goal. And how did it feel when you got your acceptance letter to medical school? It felt surreal. It was an absolute dream come true. I I was the only doctor that I or person going to medical school that I knew. I didn't have family members that were doctors. In fact, I was probably one of the first people going to university in my family. Wow. Um, I'm from a little town. I'm Shatazana Township in Durban. So, it it was amazing, but very scary. You know, you scared that you're going to let people down. You scared that you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. And <clears throat> yeah, it's. Yes, unknown. And unreal. leaving home at 18. So a whole new city, a yeah. whole new province. Alone. Wow. Mm, yeah, it was... 
Did you enjoy medical school? I mean, are there any uh, nightmares from medical school? I loved medical school. I um, studied at WITS, stayed on campus. I think there's pros and cons to staying at home, obviously. Mm. Mm. But for me, I loved the independence. I loved being on campus. I loved being a little bit away from home, having the chance to explore. I did every good thing I wanted to and dabbled in all the bad things I wanted to also, which, I mean, safely, bad safely things. <laughs> um, and I think it's good. Uh, it was a very good experience, made lifelong friends. My three current best friends are still from my first year wow. at med school. We all lived in the same uh, row together, so they still study with me. We still chat every day, every week. Uh, yeah. That's incredible. Okay, you were going to tell me about internship. So, <clears throat> internship, uh, I think it's similar to what you guys experienced today, but a little bit, I mean, we, we had it a little bit easier, but I was third-rounded for my internship choices, mm. um, so didn't get anywhere in Durban or anywhere where I wanted to be close to family. I got placed internship in Port Chepston eventually after I had to uh, appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Port Chepston was lovely, beautiful. I, I would still recommend it. I still have friends there on the beach, beautiful hospital. It's not too academic and it's not too local also. Beautiful mix, few consultants, uh, lovely. Um, so was that a, a good experience, especially with the, the fear and the, I suppose, the disappointment of not getting your first choice mm. to then find that actually even your third choice was okay? Mm. Yeah, it was. It I think I'm always under the impression that God knows. <laughs> so there's always a plan, even though I'm not making the plan. I think retrospectively, that whole Port Chepston was very good for me to grow as a person, for me to grow as a doctor, to be a little bit independent, to not be baby-held. Yeah. Um, you know, I really learned a lot. So yeah. if there was one enduring lesson that you learned from your internship experience, is there anything that you still carry with you from that time, even... 15 years ago. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think you, you carry people. Mm -hmm. So I still remember the names of my consultants. I still remember I was asked by my surgery consultant, how much does one unit of blood increase your hemoglobin by, you know? And thankfully I knew that. And, you know, y you remember. Every yeah. time I see Port Chepston on the map, whenever I see the beach, I remember. Yeah. That's excellent. <clears throat> so then community service, was that the immediate year after or did you do two years of internship? One year internship. We okay. rotated through, I think, three or four disciplines mm -hmm. every three or four months. Mm -hmm. And then community service a year later, one year community service at that stage. I got placed in Bethel in Mpumalanga. Sure. Also completely unknown, uncharted territory, never heard of the place. And there was no Apple Maps and GPS and garments at that stage this was 2007 I had a physical hard map and I drove my car all the way there by myself and started there but wow. also incredible experience the entire town had one uh, KFC I think it was and that was it sure uh, so <clears throat> I've got a fun story about um, using paper maps because we told our kids that we used paper maps back in the day and my youngest child said, like a pirate. <laughs> true, true. That is exactly how I felt. <laughs> like a pirate, yeah. So community service, at that stage, were you uh, thinking about what you wanted to do long term? Had you any inkling of where you wanted to go in medicine? 
I've been very blessed in that God has always directed my path before I've needed to get there. Mm-hmm. So when I was in fourth year at Helen Joseph Hospital under Prof. Ariava at the time, I got I attended a touch very late. You know, you get the bus, but actually that bus wasn't my issue. I probably was sitting at the coffee shop with friends. So I got to the touch really late and then he picked on me and he said, right, you come listen to the heart. And... <clears throat> I knew there was a mitral regurg, and at that moment, I knew that I wanted to go into internal medicine. Yes. I'd never, <clears throat> yeah. As the, a fourth-year medical student, mm-hmm. so for people listening not familiar with the VITS uh, circuit, at that point, you have very limited exposure mm-hmm. to patients. So yes. it might have been the first time you actually auscultated mm-hmm. a chest with pathology, yes. right? It was the first year we started going to the wards, but just that amazing thrill of knowing yes, I was right, was yeah, wow. fantastic. And that was my moment. Yeah. yeah. So, so internal medicine generally or cardiology specifically? Internal medicine at that stage, I didn't think I knew enough about mm. everything else. I mean, I'd never even heard of the word rheumatology at that stage. Okay, so yeah. tell us now, completing community service and finding a way into internal medicine, obviously an extremely competitive path. Um, did you have to do any diplomas, any extra courses? Did you have to do extra MO time? What was that journey like into uh, a reg post in internal medicine? Look, I know how difficult it is at this point. So it was difficult then, but not as bad. Um, I also think my choice of internal medicine was by exclusion. I knew I wasn't a surgeon. I knew I'm definitely not going to put a nail in a bone. <clears throat> so... I went back to Durban and I started as a medical officer at RK Khan Hospital. I worked there for two years and then uh, just honed my love for medicine. I, I to, to be honest, it was that I thought I wasn't good enough. I thought I used to see all the registrars, I used to see their Harrisons, I used to listen to the war drums and I thought this is insane. I'm never, no matter how much I study, I'm never going to be smart enough, I'm never going to know enough. I will. Like, these people have to know everything. And it, med school was already overwhelming, and I, I really, that was the reason I thought I was never going to be good enough. <clears throat> and then stayed in that department as a medical officer for two years. And then you get great consultants. You get people that meet you, love you, and get to know you, and they say, listen, you're wasting your time. You can do this. And you need, I think, you need to believe and trust in yourself. Medicine is not for the smart. Mm. It is for the hardworking and it's for the people who want to be good doctors. And that's what I realized. And that was my goal. I wanted to be a good doctor because I loved people. Amazing. And yeah. You mentioned that you had some consultants who believed in you Mm -hmm. and obviously um, motivated you, encouraged you, comforted you in some bad Mm -hmm. times. Do you have any names, any consultants that really stood out for you? Yeah. During that time, it was Prof. uh, Naresh Ranjit. I still, I'm still in touch with him. I message him every now and then. And yeah, he was great. He's the one who pushed me into moving forward. Fantastic. So specializing in internal medicine first. So first getting to that point where you get, got in your FCP, like uh, your FCP. What's that like in South Africa? What's the journey like? How long is it? Do you have uh, flexibility in terms of some, you know, some programs will get you six months uh, less or six months longer, depending on what your circumstances are? What was it like? So I'm just going to backtrack a bit because mm. it sounds like everything was quite straightforward, but there are always obstacles. Yeah. So after those two years of medical officer time, sure. just when I'd applied for a registrar post, uh, 
uh, I did not get a post in KZA, in the Natal circuit, so I got a post in the Peter Maritzburg circuit, which was fine, but then I got tuberculosis. Oh, uh, wow. So I had pulmonary TB and... No, no, so actually, sorry. I started my reg time, and six weeks later, I was, I, I was just not well. You know, you, you have a wheeze, you have a cough, you have night sweats, but it's Durban, it's 30 degrees, and everyone says... At midnight. <laughs> yes. Everyone says um, you're stressed out and you're anxious. Yes. And <clears throat> I sent 10 different sputum samples. Every time I walk through the past the lab, I just pop another sputum, send it off, and nothing so I ended up having a bronchoscopy and was diagnosed with pulmonary TB wow. and then you get friends and family and everybody gets panicked I mean this is 13 years ago it was scary <clears throat> and so I I left I left my goal and my dream and I was just so sick I had drug-induced liver injury from wow. TB and really really sick so I left and came up to Joburg and got a job in international SOS. Uh, they're an air transport company. We do medical. Like helicopter doctors. Yes, right? yes, yeah. but more. Yeah, so we pick up fixed wing. From, or? We pick up. We had Cessnas. Oh yeah, a little fixed wing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. We, we used to pick up patients from different parts of Africa yeah. uh, for emergencies. Wow. Uh, but also, it was safe. It was yes. safe. I, I stayed in an office, and I worked. I wrote medical reports, and I felt safer than being in the whole TB environment because I was scared. I, I was scared. Mm. I, I was scared of going back to clinical medicine. And I worked in international SOS for two years. And then I realized I can't do this. I've wanted to be a proper clinical doctor for, <clears throat> at that stage, more than 25 years. What am I doing? Uh, fear can't stop me because God has a plan. <clears throat> so I applied and got back onto the registrar circuit in WITS at this time because WITS was my home uh, undergrad. So emailed a few people, got an interview and started again. Did anyone ever raise that with you? Like, why did you leave your time in KwaZulu-Natal? Did anyone broach that subject with you? Yes, I think all my consultants and everyone at the time knew what was going on. And, and were they sympathetic? I mean, what was the feedback like that you were getting? Ugh, I was on TB treatment uh, as a registrar and still did the Friday, Sunday, 24 hour, 24 hour. Sure. Uh, and then, that, you know, it was just too much. Yeah. And that was when I decided to leave. Okay. I, you know, it, it's very person dependent. I wouldn't say it's hospital dependent. It's who you meet on that day. Mm. I love the idea of the human side, the mm. story coming through. And with every consultant that we interview, you know, although we have a list of questions to get through, it's wonderful to have your personal experience in your history. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. If I can now bring us back to internal medicine and the different fields within internal medicine, when you're studying as a registrar in internal medicine, you're expected, like you said, to know it all. At that point, was there anything that was shining out for you? And, and particularly when we come to rheumatology, was there anything that was really captivating you about internal medicine? Yeah. So um, the previous question you asked me was how mm. long does it take? So mm. you can do, to enhance your chances, it would be good to have medical officer background and training. It would be good to start preparing for your part one because um, you can write that sometimes outside before you even get a post. And then I, uh, so it takes four years of registrar training like most other disciplines and you rotate every four months. So there's three hospitals on the bit circuit, 
Barra, Jobok Jen, and Helen Joseph. We rotate four monthly. You usually do half your time in internal medicine, in general medicine, so the general medical wards, usually at Barrow or Helen Joseph, and the other two years are usually subspec mm. uh, time. During my subspec time, I never did rheumatology. Oh, wow. <clears throat> I was not exposed to rheumatology. You don't get to do every subspec. Yes. You, you, you get probably four or five. Well, I mean, imagine that if you're doing general medicine at a hospital mm. like Barra, mm. you, I no, mean, you really. say no exposure, yes, yes, yes. but <laughs> your exposure is better than most countries yes. would see. No, no, so during your general medicine time, yes. you're exposed to every yes. suspect. So you do get your exposure, and if you've got a special interest, you put it forward, yeah. and they would, uh, they do take that into account. So my special interest was endocrinology. I was adamant I was going to do endocrinology. I love... I love diabetics. I love the metabolic syndrome. I think that's one of the biggest causes of morbidity and mortality in our country. I think almost everything can be linked to that. Very passionate about people and lifestyle. <clears throat> and so I really wanted to do that. Uh, so then you do part one and part two of your FCP. Part one is written, part two is your oral <clears throat> exam. So after part two and passing part two, um, they, so because I had done some time in Durban and my time was split, I finished in February, in a February. So just that January, two months before that, they'd already taken the endocrinology fellows. So I missed my chance. So I was very heart sore, but the, the option was, you know, wait till next year or wait till two years till someone finishes to get a post. So whilst waiting, I wanted to stay in government. Mm. Uh, I think that's the best way to learn because often FCP, you're not really prepared to just pra practice by yourself. So I chatted to all my consultants. And the thing is, when you're a good doctor, when you get to know people, when you're conscientious, people will help you. <clears throat> so my consultant said, listen, the rheumatology department is short of a consultant. And why don't you go there? And I said, this is a great opportunity. I've never done rheumatology. Nice to learn something different. And sure. I went into rheumatology and everything that I thought about rheumatology was dispelled. You know, all the myths you talk about. In my mind, I thought rheumatology was all these old grannies coming in talking to you about their joints and their back pain. And, <clears throat> and I thought, what do you do for them? I don't know. They can't exercise. What do you put? <laughs> Honestly, I thought there's nothing I could do. But it was the complete opposite. Rheumatology was patients like me. They were female. Most rheumatoid autoimmune conditions are female. Uh, they were my age. They all they young patients, uh, and they had similar issues. They well, not similar issues to me, but they they had daily issues that you could identify with as a person. These young females would have joint pains, but disabling joint pains. Uh, they have recurrent miscarriages. They have, um, <clears throat> you know, emotional, psychological disturbances from their multi-system disorders. Mm. And their conditions were not diagnosed. They, they would wait for diagnosis for almost 10 years because wow. of the lack of awareness of autoimmune conditions in the world. The average time of diagnosis for most autoimmune patients are, is more than five years. Yeah. It's... But there were also little kids. There was one patient in a rheumatology clinic that started with a pediatrician at two years old, 
because he, he already couldn't walk from the time he was two years old. He had swollen joints. He was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. He spent up to the age of 18 in pediatrics rheumatology, and then he was now 22 when I met him. Wow. So for 20 years of this kid's life, every single month, that mom brought that child, and she would wow. sit at clinic, at rheumatology clinic. Because I used to feel sorry for myself that I have to get up and come to hospital every day. And then I thought, I don't have to bring a sick child to hospital every week. So <clears throat> the rheumatology patients make me realize and appreciate my life. The, you know, we don't have to have anything amazing to be thankful for, but we, we could be thankful that we're not bringing sick children to hospital. We could be thankful that we could walk, that yeah. we're not, that we have children, that just we don't have chronic joint pains. We're not crazy 100 percent. wow so wow i mean we touched on a lot there rheumatology as you mentioned uh, does cover a lot of autoimmune conditions but maybe you can clarify especially for the medical students and the junior doctors who've only really experienced rheumatology in an inpatient setting with somebody with a massive lupus flare-up you know end stage uncontrollable um lupus or somebody with scleroderma and looking for signs in that patient as you alluded to, rheumatology is far, far wider than that. So as a practicing rheumatologist now, what is your patient population like? What are your typical um, conditions that you're managing and treating? And then maybe we can ask questions about how you divide your time as well. Okay. So after your FCP, then you do another three years of rheumatology training. You also need to do a four years master's in medicine. Uh, and then you become a rheumatologist. Mm. Also two exams. Um, so rheumatology is a study of immune-related conditions. So obviously, you, as you've mentioned, the most common ones are lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and scleroderma, other rarer things, <laughs> polymyositis, dermatomyositis, your complement disorders. Uh, they, they're just Sjogren's, quite a few, Sjogren's, yeah. all of that. Um, psoriatic arthritis, very common actually. Oh, really? Very, very common in South Africa. Then spondyloarthritis. So will we see completely different rheumatology to other places around the world, mm. or is it pretty consistent? South Africa has quite a nice mix of mm. rheumatology. Uh, rheumatology is also ethnic and uh, gender-based. Uh, there are quite a few variations there. So, <clears throat> yeah, South Africa, because of our colourful nation, we have quite a nice mix. You alluded to it earlier, and, and we commonly say that between the age of 20 and 40, female, that's mm -hmm. like your risk factor uh, population mm -hmm. for developing a rheumatological condition. Um, so that obviously forms a, a large part of your patient population, but are there any surprising like modes within the population where you see more frequency or, or a higher number of patients within a certain age range than you would expect? Yeah, so the children, I was quite surprised at how many children. So we're adult rheumatologists, so mm -hmm. we only see them above 16 or 18. Mm. But the kids have so much rheumatology. They, they, it, it's So don't dismiss joints and pain in kids. Wow. Um, yeah. And then older patients, it's not just childbearing women. Loop, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, a second peak in postmenopausal women. Mm -hmm. Then gout can happen at any time, mm. the spondylos, uh, psoriatic arthritis, very important, also very metabolic syndrome based. 
So it's clear that your passion <clears throat> does still come through for a little mm, bit of like metabolic yes. syndrome and endocrinology. How much interplay does rheumatology have with other parts of internal medicine? Obviously, having that foundation in internal medicine means that you are able to manage, to a certain extent, you can manage what a cardiologist does, what a pulmonologist does. And these rheumatological conditions will have manifestations in all of those body systems. How, um, how much involvement do you have in a multidisciplinary team and, and managing patients in other areas? So rheumatology is one of those very uh, complex disciplines. Okay. Uh, there are lots of guidelines, there are lots of protocols, but it's amazing because you get to use your mind. You need to be smart, you need to be, it, it is a puzzle. Mm-hmm. You have to put all the pieces together to get the final answer. Honestly, if you're going to take each system by itself, you're going to miss most of it because rheumatology is multi-systemic. Every single patient with lupus can have any single organ affected equally and differently to any other patient. It's so specific to the patient. <clears throat> so you need to be on the ball at so all is times. This, is that a plus? And is that a pro of rheumatology? I, I like it because I find that it's... Uh, it's very thought-provoking. You have to use your mind. You have to use your brain. You, you know, you have to be smart. I mean, I'm a subspecialist. I love subspecializing and subspecialists. Most of my friends are, but I think you also have to look outside of your speciality a little bit and sometimes uh, be a bit broader based and make sure we look at the patient as a whole. Amazing. That's a great answer. So I want to now ask you about the exposure and the training of rheumatology in South Africa, because most of our audience would be junior doctors if they're considering specializing here versus specializing elsewhere. I'm a South African. I believe in our country. Despite our problems, I think there's problems everywhere. But what's it like specializing in South Africa? And then are our credentials recognized elsewhere? Or if you had the intention to to work elsewhere, would you be best served um, specializing in another country? You know, so I believe, and I can say it internationally, I have said it on international platforms before, South African doctors are amongst the best in the world. Our training is unparalleled, unheard of. Um, I'm sure almost every consultant's told you that uh, we have the greatest exposure in whether it's internal medicine, rheumatology, or any any speciality. Uh, Our training is very good. We, We... quite independent, it's quite independent-based learning. After med school, everything else is very independent-based learning. With regards to whether our training is recognized, (laughs) yes, your basic MBBCH is quite easy to convert to most countries. Once you're a specialist, you need what's called CESA registration. So once you specialize, you would um, need, so different countries are very different, so some countries, you would need uh, exams. So England, Canada, they require quite hectic, serious exams. Sure. They require you to write a basic med school exams again. Mm-hmm. And wow, so you, even though you've qualified and you might have had experience yeah. as a doctor, you have to rewrite your qualification exams. Yeah, even after being a subspecialist. Wow. So I've looked into Canada and they expect you to rewrite 60 exams again. Uh, and this was, I wrote 60 exams probably 15, 18 years ago. Um, I've had friends who've just recently written it and done well. Um, <clears throat> for other countries, if you want to go over as a specialist, you need to prove equivalence. Mm-hmm. 
So it's very country specific, I think, uh, whichever country you're wanting to look forward to in future, start looking at their guidelines now so you can start keeping documents and whatever. They ask for things like internship certificates and internship books that you have to hand in. Uh, but they do, every country recognizes South African doctors and they value us. You mm. could get a job. Mm. But I, I'm also a firm believer in South Africa being the absolute best country and we should all try to make, uh, you know, pull together. But um, I also do have two little kids and <clears throat> I am looking at the options of uh, other opportunities in other countries. What would you say if I was to ask you about the perks, perils and pitfalls of rheumatology? So let's start with the good stuff. What is the, the things that gladden your heart about rheumatology? What is really rewarding that makes you say, this is a great subspec? We can do something. It's not the old grannies. Mm. We do have treatment. Mm -hmm. Rheumatoid arthritis treatment has, and lupus and most of the autoimmune conditions have evolved to such a stage where most of the treatment is accessible, at, like financially and uh, <clears throat> available. Um, so we can treat patients and patients get very good outcomes. Yes. You, can, you can get patients who come into your rooms in a walking a wheelchair unable to walk and you start them on treatment and within six weeks some of those patients are walking wow. they're mobile they're active they've got improved quality of life you're restoring dignity yes. and independence <clears throat> and healing yeah. them that's amazing it is once you can diagnose those patients and start on effective treatment you can make a very quick difference quite yeah. rapidly do you have any uh, without sharing mm. patient information or, or identifiers any really cool stories specific that you think this is a amazing it case it is it is all it's it's every day we i get patients hugging me the one guy that left just before you picked me up and put me on his shoulder <laughs> and he said he couldn't walk up the steps when he met me four years ago and wow. now he's done that wow and patients are thankful they are generally thankful because they have met many doctors before that weren't able to help them <clears throat> wow so that's all the, the pluses that mm. you're selling on, on rheumatology now but if you were to give fair warning to somebody about what you've been through and what you've experienced what are some of the cons um, some of the drugs we use are very expensive and it's very sad that uh, in South, well in the world throughout the world, a lot of drugs are still not accessible. So the majority of patients on the baseline and foundation treatment, yes, we can help them. But the patients that are refractory, the patients not getting better or they need escalation and therapy, we use certain things like biologics, mm. but there's still such high medical aid co-payments. Uh, government has some access to it, but not enough. I think uh, drug availability yeah, should not be dependent upon finances, mm. but should reach a wider audience. Is that something that in the next 10 to 15 years would hopefully improve? We're hoping so. Uh, the drug prices have become better and uh, access to biologics has vastly improved already. Wonderful. So if somebody <coughs> is listening to this and they're a junior doctor and they're going to, in 10 to 15 years, be a rheumatologist, mm. what do you see the landscape of rheumatology in the year 2040 being like? I think there'll always be space for rheumatology. Um, autoimmune conditions, for some strange reason, is on the rise. We're mm -hmm. not sure 
why, uh, especially post-COVID, we've had such a surge of autoimmune conditions. We don't know if there's been stuff going on with COVID. Uh, people say vaccine. I, 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 I don't know. I can't comment on any of these things. But I think patients with a previous risk of autoimmune conditions are probably coming out more. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't, yeah, so... Have it, our detection rates also improved? Mm. So, so do you see the lab being a big driver, or is that have we kind of reached a zenith in terms of our lab's ability to detect autoimmune um, diseases, or is that still continuing to improve and grow every year? The labs have become amazingly sensitive. Tests, tests have always been there, but now we've got new markers, new uh, antibodies that we're testing for, which really give us quite. Um, Good results and able to diagnose better because remember autoimmune conditions are invisible patients mm. say they're not well and nobody can figure it out and they just all say it's stress or it's anxiety so in your mind so these patients feel really validated when they have a diagnosis yeah so do patients self-present or are they <clears throat> all referred I mean does somebody phone you up and say I'm feeling unwell no one else can help me it must be rheumatological mm. please help me I get that all the time oh really yeah people just phone people cry for appointments, people have sat outside my room uh, for six or eight hours waiting for a slot because there are very few rheumatologists in South Africa. Really? You can double check the figures, but mm. I think, yeah, about probably 80 in the whole country, roundabout. Uh, obviously, changes every day depends on how many are qualifying and how many are leaving and all of that. But so, rheumatology, there's a big scope. And it's, it's a nice lifestyle, especially if you female or male wanting to spend time with family and kids. There are not too many massive emergencies, and it's, it's a good lifestyle. Besides no, no emergencies and being able to choose kind of your hours and stuff, uh, is there anything else that one should consider if one was thinking of rheumatology as a career? Is there anything else that really um, is important that we don't really always think of? I think you need the right personality. You need mm. to be quite um, diligent and quite thorough. You don't want to miss stuff uh, in rheumatology because you treat them with chemotherapy. You know, you need to be careful. These are people's lives. In every discipline, you need to do that. But I feel rheumatology a lot. These patients have lifelong conditions. You need to be the type of person that they bond with. Uh, they need to have. They they usually have lifelong bonds with you, mm. and. Uh, for me, okay, we'll go to the next one. I'll yeah. shoot your question, uh, the perils. Yes. I think I'm quite an anxious person, and I, I worry a lot about my patients. So after I treat them or they message me, I keep thinking, are they going to be okay? I wonder. I WhatsApp them. I check on them. I wonder if this drug is too strong for them. I wonder if they're going to have drug side effects. So I think you also need to, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's more, it's more, that's more my own problem. I need to let go a little bit. I'm quite attached to most of my patients and I'm quite anxious, so I'm always stressed about them. I, while I'm eating, while I'm showering, while I'm sleeping, I'm thinking about Mrs. X, is she gonna be okay? Then I, I, I WhatsApp, are you okay? And she's like, I'm fine. <laughs> um, so, yeah. But that's part, I mean, earlier you alluded to being a good doctor. That's mm. part of being a good <clears throat> doctor, right? It's actually caring about your patients, yeah. carrying them in your heart. But sometimes it gets too much because you, you miss your own life because you worry too much about your patients. So then when that becomes overwhelming and mm. life does catch up with you and you just need a break, what are some of the ways that you as a rheumatologist and as you as an individual find uh, are good ways to relax, to unwind, to unplug from medicine for a bit? 
it's it's been that's been a lesson that I've been learning and still learning because I tend most doctors tend to not know when we're close to that burnout stage and we all think it can't happen to us and we all think we're superhuman and I've noticed in myself and my colleagues lately that it is a real thing especially post-COVID it's a real thing we struggle um, <clears throat> the world is somehow much harder than it was before mm. um, so what do I do I'm still learning what to do I, I don't know yet I try to sleep I try to rest try to relax I try to go for walks I spend more time with my kids mm. I watch Bridgerton I, I, I don't know <laughs> if you yeah you know in our previous episode with the psychiatrist we were uh, talking quite in depth about mental health and as you just said now you know we're so good at pointing out burnout and moral injury in others mm. but we don't pick up the signs in ourselves until we're having an absolute breakdown yeah. so is there anything that you just want to encourage our junior doctors with because being a junior doctor as you, as you said in south africa it is independent learning mm. we're putting ourselves under pressure and we're being exposed to things that are not normal is there any encouragement or any kind words that you can give? If you were that kind consultant on the ward round, speaking to your junior, what would you say to them? Sure. I, I, I honestly do love all my medical students. I, I still go teach at Barra every now and then. I love um, junior doctors because I've been so well supported and I feel that's really helped me. And I think being a consultant that loves doctors is better than being that strict consultant because I was exposed to people like Prof David Blumson and um, you know when you find someone amazing like that you want to be like that you do whatever you need to and do to be better I would say it's tough we know it's tough we've all been there we've all struggled you're not alone in finding that it's tough um, and also Every single person, well, every single medical student I know or doctor that I'm friends with now has always thought or had periods where we thought we're not good enough. Yeah. Most doctors are arrogant, yes, but we also go through that we're not good enough. We can't do this. Imposter this is too syndrome much. is real. Yes, we can't do this. It's too much. It is normal to feel like that. It is acceptable to feel like that. You just have to do it one day at a time and we're all feeling it so don't feel afraid to say to your friend hey how are you feeling this is how i'm feeling reach mm -hmm. out to a friend reach out to a colleague um yeah thank you so much for the kind of answer outside of rheumatology as it stands now in south africa are there any international resources that we can learn from if somebody's interested in rheumatology are there any podcasts any books anything that they can stay up to date with so South African Rheumatology Association is called SARA, S-A-R-A-A, and they've got quite a nice website with uh, resources and things like that. And we also follow, uh, in South Africa, we use American College of Rheumatology and European League of Rheumatology, so ACR and EULA, we use their guidelines. So those are the three good websites that I would read. On. Mm. And... and Within rheumatology, is there like a good consensus or is, is there ever argy-bargy and like 
the Americans will say one thing and the Europeans will say another thing? Or is everyone kind of in agreement? <clears throat> There's that throughout the world. Yeah. Right? Everyone thinks they're it. <laughs> but um, I think in rheumatology, this is quite nice consensus. We, we like ACR slash EULA, we, mm-hmm. they, they collaborate on their guidelines. So they've got quite nice international guidelines. And South Africa is very good in that we adopt their guidelines and just tailor it to our population. But we use most of their guidelines. Okay. So if you were to design the perfect rheumatologist, so you, you, let's say you're the creator and you're creating the perfect rheumatologist, what would the perfect rheumatologist be like in terms of their mannerisms, the way they think, um, maybe their upbringing, <laughs> you know, yeah. the five-year-old says, I'm going to be a rheumatologist. So Simon, I would say if I was a patient, Okay. What would I want my rheumatologist to I like be? the way you flip that around, yeah. Because I get patients every day who come and tell me about <clears throat> their previous experiences, about their previous doctors. And as much as they say, listen, I don't want to hear about the previous doctor, or tell me about the previous doctor without their name, because I don't want to get involved in that. And they tell me what, what's actually happened to them, and it's so sad. You know, I can't comment and say, that's terrible, that's disgusting that a doctor did that to you because it's not ethical to say that, but that's what I think in my mind. So if I had to design a perfect doctor as a patient, I would want someone who has the foundation of academia. I think every single patient would agree that their doctor needs to be smart, Uh, primarily. Their doctor needs to care. That's the next thing. Patients, their biggest complaint is not that their doctor mistreated them or wrote the wrong medicines is their doctor didn't care, they were too quick, they were too rushed, they didn't empathize with them. Um, so academic foundation, just to care, to really want to help. The way I treat every single patient is I assume that patient is my family member. <clears throat> and how would I want my mom to be treated by another doctor? How much would I go to help my mom is how much I would go to help any other patient. I would do whatever I could. I would help her. I would go through whatever medical aid hoops. I would write the medical aid motivations. I would speak to her other family members because I understand it's a domino effect. If one person in the family is sick, everybody else is stressed out, anxious, and sick. So you help that one mother, you're helping kids, you're helping grandkids, you're helping everybody. So let them know what's going on, teach them how they can help, teach them how they can prevent these things. Everyone with a family member of autoimmune condition think, is my child going to inherit this condition? Did I get it from my mom? Can I get married? Can I have children? I mean, these are concerns that we can dispel immediately so that person's not sitting for 20 years thinking, I'm never going to get married or have a child. so rheumatologists need to be people orientated. We're dealing with people. We're not dealing with bones. I mean, yeah. we are dealing with bones, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. We don't fix bones and never see the patient again. 100%. We are dealing with people. Yeah. <clears throat> wow, I love that answer. So Dr. Lazarus, if I was to think about the, the layperson's understanding of rheumatology, it's quite limited and they can get very confused with what, what rheumatology is and not understand it. So how does your family understand rheumatology and how does your family interact with you as a medical doctor? Honestly, my family still doesn't know what rheumatology is. <laughs> it's it's very complex, you know. I, I've had to write it on my mom's like little piece of paper and in a wallet because the things I've been called by family members and aunts <laughs> and like nobody knows what to call me. Uh, <clears throat> 
I think, and every single time you ask, you tell someone you're a doctor and they say, what type of doctor? It's the most frustrating question because I know that the moment I say I'm a rheumatologist, they're going to say, what's that? Really? And then you've got to sit and explain to them, but yeah. So, so I mean, in the, in the layperson's mind, they kind of have an idea of that a cardiologist is a mm. specialist in the heart. Do they recognize that a rheumatologist is the same level of subspecialization? No, I don't think they, they know where it falls or what it means. People get confused with hematology or oncology or orthopedics. Um, <clears throat> look, there are lots of doctors who get rheumatology confused with, you know, lots of different things because they refer to the wrong person. Yeah. Um, but, but I think it, 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 like sometimes it's frustrating, but it is also a way to improve awareness. So yeah. I also need to not get as annoyed <laughs> as often as I do. Do they ever come to you for medical advice? Uh, Simon, I, I'm sure it happened to you also from the time, I think when you're in matric and you tell people you want to study medicine, you already get questions from friends, family, people you've never seen, never met, a friend of a friend of your brother's friend who send you a WhatsApp of a rash. <laughs> so what do I do with this? Or yesterday I got a message from my friend who's got a 12-day-old baby and she said, he's not well, must, what must I do? I've never seen the child. I don't know what to do with your child. You know, um, so I think every medical person will start having that. And I think we must be aware. Do not try to make diagnoses over WhatsApps, over yeah. phone calls, over things. It's very tempting to because you assume that rash is X, but there are thousands of rashes. You, you cannot take responsibility for any person's life via a WhatsApp message. There are always things we're not thinking about. A flu is not necessarily a flu. People have died from COVID and people have survived from COVID. So not every single um, <clears throat> thing is clear cut. And patients don't give you their full extent of symptoms. They don't know what to look out for. So unless you're examining that patient or taking full medical legal responsibility, mm -hmm. try avoid these things. Get yeah. them to go see their closest doctor or their local clinic. That's very good advice. And a uniquely modern mm -hmm. problem as well. I mean, 20 years ago, you couldn't just take a video mm -hmm. and send it and say, hey, doc, what's mm -hmm. this? <laughs> and unless you can do a full consultation in person, I don't think it's very wise. Yeah, very good advice. I hope everyone's listening to that. So Dr. Lazarus, you are only my third guest who practices primarily in private practice. I've had some professors who, you know, work and things like that, but um, you are primarily in private practice. What are some of the unique challenges of being in private practice and what's the experience been like for you so far? So it's a very different world. Um, I wouldn't say better and I wouldn't say worse. Okay. I think there are pros and cons to each. I did want to stay in government because it felt familiar. I enjoyed government. I enjoyed the colleagues and the camaraderie and asking for advice. Private practice, the cons, we'll do the cons first. Sure. Yes, you've got lots of colleagues, but I'm the only rheumatologist in my hospital. And sometimes I just want a second opinion. I want to run past something, something via a colleague. And I don't always have that. You know, I can call a friend and all of that. But it's very different bumping into someone in the passage. We don't have these grand ward rounds every morning. <clears throat> I don't have an intern doing bloods for me and doing uh, drips. 
when the nurse can't put up an intravenous line at two o'clock in the morning and the patient needs antibiotics, they call me and I drive from home, whether I'm on call or not, to put up a drip. <clears throat> um, I see all my own patients, I clock all my own patients and do everything every single day. I also work as a physician, so I do 10, 24-hour calls per month. Uh, but we do them from home. But we do come in quite often, so you come in for a gastroenteritis. The patient profile is very different in private healthcare. Patients, for some reason, think they own you. Sure. They feel they are their, your only patient and you work for them. Wow. That doctor respect barrier has been distorted in many patients in private practice. I wouldn't say all. Some patients mm -hmm. still have that. But a lot of patients are very demanding. They're very critical. Wow. Uh, private practice obviously depends on the area you work in. I work in a, quite an affluent area. Uh, there's a lot of Google doctor. Mm -hmm. So I get patients walk in with their already book of questions. They come in, they read all their pamphlet inserts. Um, why didn't you tell me about this eighth side effect on this medicine? And, you know, so it's a very different world to government practice. <clears throat> um, so it's, it's long hours. Uh, it, it feels like private, you make lots of money. Yes, you do if you work hard. But you're working, you, you really work. You work for every patient you see. Oh, I want another kind of private practice is that not everybody can afford medical care. Sure. Medical aids don't pay for everything. Sure. There are still limits for radiology. There are still limits. There are limits uh, in private practice, and it's expensive mm. for patients to manage that, those co-payments. And out-of-hospital treatment is not covered in most medical aids and most plans. You still pay specialist fees, which are quite a high. Yeah. The benefits of private practice, I mean, there are many. <clears throat> you work for yourself. You can take the afternoon off. You can pick and drop your kids off from school. You can tailor your day. You have a secretary who does a lot of your admin. Uh, well, although you have to write your own medical reports and you get hounded by medical aides, you have to write medical reports for every single thing. Uh, for a patient with... COVID who's on a ventilator, your medical aide wants to know why is the person admitted. So you have to tell them the person is on a ventilator and unconscious and yeah, yeah you have to tell them. Wow. Then they'll pay the hospital bill. Wow. Um, but the other benefits are you do get paid. You get paid well. If you work well, you've got a good patient base, you do get paid well. Uh, you can take holidays when you want. You don't have to really answer to anyone. Uh, you know... I can leave my handbag in my office. I don't have to carry a handbag around. So there are lots of benefits, but yeah, it's a different world altogether. Mm. Very mm. different. Is there anything that more starkly contrasts with public, um, like the really glaring stuff? I mean, you spoke about the patient population's difference, the working conditions are different. Are you still treating rheumatology the same, whether it's public or private? Not necessarily. It, okay. we, we spoke about access to drugs and sure. biologics and the cost of rheumatological drugs. Biologics are sometimes 5,000 rand a month. And those are like reasonable ones. Sure. There are some that are more than 100,000. So, so there's just some conditions yeah. that in public you're not going to be able to manage the same as As effectively, yeah. 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 I mean, we can get an MRI in private in 10 minutes. Yeah, and in, in public they're going to wait yeah. until maybe 10 days. Yes, yes, yeah. if at all. Yeah. Wow. Okay. 
So I still keep up with, I, I still love my friends in government, so I still go, I'm still external examiner for some of the medical students, uh, third, fourth, fifth and sixth years, and I do some of the teaching at Barra still. Awesome. So you've still got one yeah, yeah. little baby toe in public. Well, <laughs> I, I, I do it voluntarily, oh, uh, wow. purely because I love my colleagues in government, and they're still all my friends, and it's nice to keep up and keep friends, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Dr. Lazarus, it has been an absolute honor and privilege to have you on the Dr. Coffee Thank podcast. You, Thank you for everything that you've said, and uh, we really appreciate your time, and we hope to see more of you in the hospitals. Yeah, sure. Well, that's it for this episode of the Dr. Coffee podcast. Thank you to our special guest, Dr. Yvette Lazarus. I hope you enjoyed it and feel motivated, encouraged, and inspired. If you have feedback on what you thought of this episode or anything else on your mind, please get in touch. The podcast's email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. You're also invited to submit messages, questions, or responses to anything you heard in the podcast via our new voice message link, which you can find in the show notes to this episode. We also have social media profiles on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. And once again, you can find links to these in the episode description and show notes. Finally, a reminder to please leave a rating or review of the podcast and consider sharing this episode with fellow junior doctors and medical students in your world who you think would benefit from the content and enjoy it. Thank you so much for your support.